Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. This is an interesting and challenging time for American conservatism because of the nature of the presidential race and the the, uh, presence of a Donald Trump, uh, the fight with Ted Cruz. It's really a definitional time, but someone who's going to have a big voice in those discussions moving forward. However, this election uh, turns out is Arthur Brooks, the president of the American Enterprise Institute and the author of a new book called The Conservative Heart. Arthur's a very, very interesting thinker. I don't agree with him a lot on a lot of stuff, but I always enjoy uh, talking with him and listening to him uh, because he has uh, an interesting cut on uh, the issues of our day. He visited uh, the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago the other day, and we had a chance to sit down for a conversation. Arthur Brooks, welcome. It's good to see you again. Last time I saw you, I think we were both at a Mitt Romney uh, retreat in, uh, in Utah, and I heard your presentation, and uh, I'm, st- I'm still buzzing from... Uh, <laughs> You know, the, the God's honest truth is they told me you were going to speak and then we were going to have a panel discussion. Right. And then Mitt stood up and said, Arthur Brooks is going to speak and then David Axelrod will respond. Yeah, that's and right. I'm sitting there listening to your very, very entertaining and interesting presentation thinking, I got nothing. <laughs> what am I going to do now? I remember you being really good. Well, I... I Improvised a short, uh, a short little something to bridge us to our discussion. But, mm-hmm. uh, but the reason your presentation was so striking was because your story is so unusual. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about uh, about how this how this this strange and interesting path you've taken to become head of the American Enterprise Institute, one of the leading conservative uh, uh, thinkers in the country. Uh, it didn't start out that way. It didn't. I grew up in Seattle, uh, the most tolerant, progressive, and uh, pro- probably liberal place in America today. My mother was an artist. My father was a college professor. And when I was a little kid, I didn't say, Mom, when I grow up, I want to be the president of a right-wing think tank, believe it or not. I actually wanted to be a musician. How would she have reacted to that? Uh, she would have said, what's that? <laughs> Which is what any, you know, any proper American would say. Most people have no idea what think tanks are still. Um, but I wanted to be a musician. That's really what I wanted uh, all the way through my childhood. And I, I wound up doing that. When I was 19, I dropped out of college, and, and I went on the road playing music. 
it, it was you know, whether I dropped it or got kicked out is a point of you know contention or history at this point. And I, I played. Where all were the, you in college? I was at a place called the California Institute of the Arts, huh. you know, outside of Los studying Angeles. Studying music. I was studying mu- music. I was supposed to be studying music. This was the problem. It turns out, <clears throat> and I can say this to any college students listening to us today, that if you drop all of your required classes and take nothing but Indonesian dance classes, that it doesn't really look good on your record, and you might get put on academic probation, which is exactly. I wonder what if there are any listeners who are actually practicing that right now. That would be. Yeah, that's right. Or be... Write in and tell me and David immediately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so I, I left. We, they up... should know that they're en route to being a president of a of a of a conservative think tank. That's right. Anyway. So beware. Yes. Beware because it, it ends in perdition. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I played chamber music for a few years, for about six years, and then I wound up in the. So Bar you were standing out like the French horn. Yeah, I was a French horn player. Professional so you don't French just player. drop out of school and jam with a French horn, right? True. I mean, I, I did play chamber music, although I did spend a couple of years on the road with a jazz guitar player named Charlie Bird, mm-hmm. uh, who yeah, was a, sure. the guy who brought Bossa Nova to the United States. That was yeah. a great experience. We traveled all over the place. We got much larger audiences than I would have gotten otherwise. And you were playing the French horn? Yeah. Well, we had a, we had a quintet, a brass quintet, that was backing up the Charlie Bird trio in those ah. days. And we had a guy named Tommy Newsom, who was the, yeah. the arranger for the Tonight Show band. Yeah, yeah, arrangements. Yeah. And we made a couple of albums, and we toured that for a couple of years. But mostly, I was a classical musician and wound up in, in the end in the, in playing in an orchestra in Barcelona, the Barcelona Symphony. Uh, and that, that was a great experience. How uh, long did you live over there? Uh, several years, about three and a half years. I actually went, I was on tour in France playing chamber music and I met a girl on my tour in France. She it was always from, starts that. Yeah, it always, every story. <laughs> and it, and, it, and uh, she lived in Barcelona and to make a proper commitment, I quit my job and moved to Spain and took a job in the orchestra. And, and uh, it took me still a couple of years to close the deal, but we've been married 25 years now. Ah, that's yeah. great. So three that kids, was a three profitable teenagers. decision there. It worked out just great, I have yeah. to say. And I enjoyed, uh, the rest of my life I've enjoyed a lot more than I did playing in the symphony, which was which was not my cup of tea, it turned out. But when I was in the Barcelona Orchestra, I started studying. I thought, I, I thought it would be a good idea to get my bachelor's degree. And somehow I got interested in economics and math. So I was doing that by correspondence, and I wound up getting my bachelor's degree by correspondence And uh, when I was just before my 30th birthday. As a matter of fact, and they did a master's degree and then ditched the music business and got my PhD and became an academic. What, uh, I, I want to explore that, but I wanted to ask you about your experience in Europe and what you took away from that. Yeah. I mean, what did you, what, what were your impressions there? Did that help shape your 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 thinking on some of these issues? I think it probably did. It Europe is has suffered for a good long time at this point. When I was living in Barcelona, I mean, I was a functionary of the Spanish government. I was a bureaucrat from the Spanish government playing in an orchestra, which is pretty weird. You know, you're playing in, in a symphony and, and you ha- you're on the same wage scale as somebody working for the Department of Motor Vehicles. Um, which is I. So if you hit a sour enough. note, did people call the government to complain? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty, but you were you were protected by the public sector union at the same time as a French horn player, which is. Again, pretty weird. Uh, but what I did see when I was living in Europe is that is the malaise that people were or already in those days, and we're talking about the late 80s and 90s, people had, there was a very high unemployment rate, a very high youth unemployment rate, and the structural rigidities in those economies just made it hard to get ahead. There was a phenomenon that we see full in blossom today in Europe, particularly in Spain, called to be a, a ni ni, and that in, in Spanish that means ni estudiar, ni trabajar, which, which means effectively 
don't you don't study and you don't work. And it's a full generation of people now in their 20s and 30s that have never studied, never worked. And there's not a culture around it, yet they're, they're supported by, meagerly, I should add, very, very little money, but they're supported by the state. And it creates a culture that I think is, is, uh, is really harmful to people, to their human flourishing. And that, that had an impression on me then, and, and, and I still see it today. I actually see the, the fruits of that. I see that it's actually gotten worse since then. And uh, so you came back and you uh, and you went and you you taught at Syracuse University, is that right? That was a little bit later. I taught at a music conservatory. My wife was <laughs> arguably a, a more checkered academic past than I had. You know, <laughs> when we first met, I, I you know got up my courage and told her I had dropped out of college. She started laughing. And I said, you know, why are you laughing at me? She said, because I dropped out of high school. Turns out that she had dropped out at 16 to sing with a rock band. And, mm. uh, and she finished her high school diploma when she was 29. When we were, by this time, we were living in Florida. And work, she was working a minimum wage job. And so we effectively immigrated to the United States. We had no money. We had no studies. She spoke very little English. And we started our lives over as immigrants to the United States. We've, we had that experience. We saw what she, it's like. She, she was from Spain? Yeah, she's from Barcelona. Mm-hmm. She, didn't, she learned English as an adult, however. And, and when we first came to the United States, it was very low-paid work. It was simply trying to get ahead in the workforce and, and, and in our studies. And, and we saw what a lot of people who come to this country are going through. Not as severe as people who are, are undocumented, of course. But we do have a, a no small amount of sympathy for people who are trying to start their lives over in this country. I should intervene at this point and ask you about this debate. I, I want to stay in sequence, but it just seems like the right time about the debate over immigration, because obviously that's been a very divisive debate, and it's been one that's played big in the Republican yeah. uh, race for president. Uh, I don't need to rehearse what Donald Trump has said and some of the debates that have gone back and forth. What What's your view of, uh, of the wall of uh, immigration reform and the need for immigration reform or the the undesirability of immigration reform? I think we need immigration reform. We need good immigration reform that would start off with something we all agree on, which uh, uh, I, I believe, and certainly President Obama believes, and people in business ag- agree that we need, which is high school immigration reform to start with. This is high, H-1B-1 visa reform, such that when people come to the United States, they can stay and work. Uh, idiotically, when people come and study in the United States, we kick them out, which is right. a, a, kind of a reverse brain drain that we're and it's it's bad for the American economy. It's bad for creating jobs. It's bad for the entrepreneurial environment that we have here. No, I, I I agree. So with we you. need to do that. This, but then, then there are a lot of things we need to do on 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 low scale immigration as well. Uh, it's worth pointing out that that this country wouldn't be what it is today if we had not had a, a good open mentality toward immigration from people of all different skill levels. I mean, I'm I'm just going to go out on a limb and say the axelrods were not on some boat coming to the United States saying, boy, oh boy, sure is going to be good to be gentry in this new country. Or No, in fact, my father came here as an immigrant from Eastern Europe in the early 1920s and came just before very draconian immigration uh, quotas were set that probably would have prevented him from coming here. Yeah. So I think about that a lot. I, mm-hmm. I went to, uh, I, I always tell the story about going to uh, Russia with my with the, with the president 
in 2009, and I was a senior advisor to the president. I heard the Russian, the Russian Army Band play in Red Square, our national anthem, hmm. and I was always moved whenever I was overseas, wherever I was, to hear our national anthem yeah. play. And I stood there with my hand over my heart, and it happened to be the eve of what would have been my father's 99th birthday. And I thought about how extraordinary it was that uh, he got he came here as a 12-year-old uh, from Eastern Europe with nothing, and I came back to Eastern Europe as a senior advisor to the president. God bless America. What a yes, great country. Yes, but I, but, I, but I would like to see others enjoy that same, uh, that same blessing. And, Absolutely. Uh, I, look, I and, and we you. are a stronger country for waves of immigrants who have come and helped build this country. That's right. Now, the, the problem that we have is there's a, a no small amount of collusion when it comes to trying to to, to regulate uh, our, our immigration system in a way that protects people who are coming into this country and, and meets a lot of the needs that we have. I mean, the idea that we would look the other way when there's a lot of illegal immigration as opposed to having a, a guest worker program that would be useful to people such that they could earn money and send it back to their families and provide have jobs that had regularized wages and benefits and the kinds of things that people need. I mean, why would we not want that? So I think, think the second immigration reform that we should talk about is a guest worker program. Program. We should also try to make sure that that the workforce doesn't exploit people who come across, uh, who come from other countries at low wages. And there's just a lot of stuff that we can well, do. Well, the, the you know the concern is about uh, corporate exploitation uh, of uh, of a guest worker uh, program. But what about the people who are here, the 11 or 12 million who are here and are clearly, you as an economist appreciate, clearly part of our economy an important part of our economy, working hard and so on. Um, uh, Donald Trump says he'd deport all of them. Is that realistic? No, it's not realistic uh, to think that he would kick 11 million people or 12 million people or 10 million. Who, the fact that we don't even know exactly the number is indicative of how... Uh, uh, how unrealistic that goal is. And, and I actually don't think that Donald Trump thinks that that's going to happen. I think that he's making an opening bid on what he thinks is an important movement, which is to deport as many people as, as he possibly can. It, but And I disagree with that. I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think it's... Uh, uh, it's probably not constitutional for a lot of different reasons. But beyond that, I think that it doesn't pass a test of basic morality. Um, I understand that we have to have some compromises and we don't want uncontrolled illegal immigration into the United States. And it's every country gets to have its own sovereignty and gets to have its own borders. But the idea of trying to round up 11 million people who are here illegally through a, a knock in the night and a police force and getting them all on buses or planes and kicking them out is, I think it's pretty ridiculous. So what, Arthur, what would you do uh, with those 11 million? That's actually a, a, a question that left and right have to effectively negotiate over. I mean, the whole idea that we're going to try to regularize people and give them a pass. I just feel you and I could really sell quickly. it right here and you know, save everybody the trouble. David, if we could, you know, let's put our minds to it. An hour <laughs> from now, we can get this thing through Congress. Okay. Uh, I, I don't think you're ever going to get conservatives to say that there should be a pathway to citizenship. Uh, but I do think that you could get most conservative politicians to say that we should find some, we should find some way to regularize the status of these people. Uh, and, and, how citizenship should occur over what period of time is something we can talk about, but we should all agree on the 70 or 80% of the problem we should be able to agree on is how to regularize the status of these people, or at the same time making sure that people are on the books, which would be much better for criminal justice. By regularize, I, I, you're, you're a wordsmith, so I'm 
wondering why you didn't use the word legalize. Yeah, well, I mean, regularization is effectively making it legal. Uh, there, like, there are a lot of people who have criminal records, and those are the people you'd want to be talking about deportation. But in the case of people who are here working, paying taxes, taking care of their families, working here in an upstanding way, uh, legalizing people with guest worker permits, uh, with, uh, with temporary worker visas, I, I think that probably both sides could come together on this. Why not citizenship? I, you know, this, this cynical person would suggest that the, the, there's a fear, at least on the part of some Republicans, that if, they, if these, these workers become citizens, that they'll also, given the, the tendencies, at least today, of various communities, might more likely become Democratic right. voters than Republican voters. But what, what, let's set that aside for a second. What is the, what is the argument for not, uh, if people pay fines, get in the back of the line, which is what George Bush, right. George W. Bush proposed. What's the argument against that? Well, the most conservatives would agree that that's not a terrible idea to pay fines and get in the back of the line because what they're worried about is basic fairness. Jump in the line in, in, in front of somebody who has actually played by the rules uh, in, in, in legal immigration. Most conservatives are not against the concept that people who now regularize or legalize or however we want to do it, going through some sort of protocols, should be able to get citizenship somewhere down the line. I think where the disagreement comes in is how quickly that occurs. The idea of, of I mean, I look, I have a lot of liberal friends and family who would, they would allow uh, um, people who are not citizens to vote. And so just dispense with citizenship entirely and go right to the voting process. And it's not unknown around the world that, that people who are not citizens would vote in different jurisdictions. Um, and that's, you know, you would think that that's probably even a little bit more cynical than what conservatives are trying to do in blocking the citizenship process in the first place. But I bet, once again, David, we could come to, to find some sort of a compromise where people wait in line for a certain amount of time, get behind people who are in the line legally, pay a fine, and their citizenship at the end, somewhere at the end of the process. Arthur, uh, just this discussion prompts the obvious question, which is, as we sit here today and have this discussion, the man who's uh, winning the Republican nomination, or at least leading in the number of delegates, and maybe the only one who who could win a first ballot victory, not saying that he will, is Donald Trump. Um, you, as someone who spends a lot of time talking about, um, I mean, your whole, and we're going to talk about your book, uh, The Conservative Heart, It, but the whole gist of it is um, to, to kind of flip this whole negativity on its head and, and present a, a, a more positive embracing uh, message, it seems that it seems almost, not almost, it seems antithetical to what is driving this Trump vote right now. Yeah, so it, it's, this is not just the Trump vote. What, we have a real problem in this country when it comes to contempt in our, in our, in our political discourse. It's, it's really interesting how contempt works. People say there's a lot of anger in American politics or a lot of just polarization in American politics. And there is a ton of polarization, to be sure. I mean, you saw this because you were working in the White House. You see, uh, these days, political scientists call it uh, political motive asymmetry, where you believe that you are motivated by love, but your opponents are motivated by hatred to you. And, and we find that a majority of both Democrats and Republicans today, according to a pretty interesting article on this in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science in 2014, most people today, believe that they are motivated by benevolence, but the other side is motivated by 
by hatred. Uh, and, and obviously, both sides can't be right. And liberals are going to think that they're right, and conservatives are going to think that they're right. But what happens when that occurs is you don't just get angry, you get contempt. Contempt is disgust, this belief in the utter worthlessness of the other. And when you get into uh, this, these iron handcuffs of, of contempt in politics, reconciliation becomes all but impossible. Right. So what we find right now is this is not just Donald Trump. This is not, I mean, this is a, a lot of what we hear from Bernie Sanders. This is a lot of what we hear from, from political candidates on both sides. They talk they talk, talk contemptuously about people with whom they disagree in their own party, let alone the other party. And, and what, what we're going to need right now is aspirational leadership, whether it's liberal or conservative, to break through and to really talk about one America. Barack Obama won in 2008 because he had a, a message. He he earned a victory in 2008 by, and I know you're, you're really behind this, of, of unity and optimism. Now, where conservatives disagree with Obama is whether he governed with respect. He, he governed on the basis of unity and optimism. A lot of conservatives believe he governed more with division and pessimism. Reasonable people disagree on that issue, but yeah. nobody disagrees that that's how he campaigned, that's how he earned it. He broke through contempt with unity and optimism, and that's ultimately what I believe we have to do today. Yeah, but my question is, um, uh, if Donald Trump is the nominee of the Republican Party, um, given the approach he's taken to politics and given some of his positions, the wall mm-hmm. uh, uh, being one. I, I haven't asked you about some of the others, uh, the, the, the Muslim ban and so on. Um, could you see yourself supporting him? Well, for one thing, as a president of AEI, um, I, I never respond to the questions about, because I run a 501c3 nonprofit, so it's, it's, it's not appropriate for me to talk about kind of who, how I would vote. Well, let really. me give you some advice, brother. Don't give up that job before November, because it's pretty <laughs> handy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and, and writing for the Times is one of the things we don't, we don't talk about, actually, how we vote either. Uh, well, let me put it this way. Uh, I can't believe I punted on your question, David. Did, well, uh, uh, let me ask you this. Are you going to vote like for, Are you going to vote for Donald Trump, David? Um, I, I think it's fair to say that I probably won't, won't vote for Donald Trump. I've actually had a relationship with him from time to time. <laughs> He's, he was very generous to, my, uh, to, to the Epilepsy Foundation that right. my, my, my family is involved in. Um, so, but I just, you know, um, I don't agree with him on some stuff. And I, I don't say that, I, I don't say that um, as a uh, commentator. Um, I just say that as a right. private citizen exercising my the, my First Amendment rights, and I know <laughs> well you're done, a strong David. supporter of First <laughs> Amendment rights. Uh, but I mean, my my point is this: Mike, uh, can it? It seems as it, let's talk about the Republican Party. Let's not talk about you. Right. It seems as if the 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 divisive nature of his message. Um, runs counter to what you're prescribing uh, for a revitalization of conservatism. Right. So there is an endemic problem in politics today. You could say that about Donald Trump, but you could say the same thing about Bernie Sanders, who's getting a larger percentage of the Democratic vote than Trump is getting of the Republican vote today. Well, there were 17 candidates in the yeah. Republican well, well, But today, even now, there are basically four candidates, two on each side. Uh, Bernie Sanders is getting— You're being unkind to Governor Kasich. Indeed, sorry. I mean, four and a half candidates, and the, the um, 
Um, You're still being unkind. I, I realize that. And, 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 and I think John, John Kasich is performing a very important service. But, uh, but Bernie Sanders is getting a larger percentage of the Democrats than the Democratic popular vote in, in these primaries. As, uh, as Donald Trump is consistently, even in the later primaries, in, on, on the Republican side. And, and their, their rhetoric is remarkably similar. It's on re- some issues. Yeah, it, it really is. And so I think that we, would, we could turn that around and say, if, if it, the fragmentation were occurring on the, on, the, on the left such that only 38 or 40% of the Democratic vote was driving toward the nomination, we'd ask, you know, what the heck is happening to the Democrats? I think that we'd be scratching our heads and saying, they've become so unbelievably negative, they moved away from the mainstream. Well, you know, you find that the same percentage of Republicans is is not Trump as the same percentage is not uh, is not Sanders. And so I think that we populism occurs almost predictably, particularly after a long tail recession. Uh, the, the Great Recession uh, made it very, very difficult for wage earners to, to, to experience economic growth. One of the great mistakes that conservatives make is blaming that all on, on President Obama. And we could have Milton Friedman in the White House, and after a financial markets crisis, you'd still see people who earn wages, who earn their living from wages, seeing largely seeing stagnation in the bottom, eight, even the 80% of the income distribution. And the result of that is exhaustion, and, and inevitably it's populism on both the left and the right. So uh, I don't think that this is an failure of republicanism per se any more than than bernie sanders suggests that we're going to have trotskyites I'm not, in the I'm, re, I'm, not, re-election. I'm, I'm not i'm not indicting uh republicanism i'm uh just noting that um your message for conservatism seems to run counter to uh the message that uh donald trump is projecting as a candidate i think that how i see the way I want conservatism to look in this country is is very humanistic. It's uh, it's different than populism per se. I, uh, and and again, that's not that's not just Donald Trump. It's anything that that talks about uh, us versus them, uh, uh, raise the drawbridge, uh, or for that matter, some simply setting one group of people against another group of people. I think that that's not consistent with the best of what conservatism can offer. You 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 point to something that I think is really the driving force behind, uh, has been for some time behind American politics. And it isn't just something that began with the recession. Uh, and that is this sense of um, growing futility on the part of large numbers of working Americans because they've seen a flattening of their uh-huh. wages. And uh, I mean, the median wage is what it was in about 1999. You know, eighty percent of Americans really have. I think it may be ninety hasn't haven't effectively seen a raise in a couple of decades, uh, and it isn't just a function of uh, sort of tran- transient uh, uh, economic factors. You're an economist, so I'm embarrassed to even uh, talk economics with you. Yeah, we can do it. We're in a safe space, David. We, we, we are in a safe space. And I appreciated the Milton Friedman reference too, by the way, <laughs> being here at the University of Chicago. Something tells me that President Obama might not have appreciated me. No, that's not true. But the, but, but my point is this, um, there are, there are really, really dramatic changes that have taken place in our economy that have nothing to do with policy so much as, um, uh, the rapid march of technology yeah. uh, that has faci- that has facilitated uh, a much greater level of globalization, a much more integrated global economy, and has rendered sort of obsolete a lot of jobs that uh, were good-paying middle-class jobs. 
that just don't exist anymore. It takes a, a fraction of the number of people, for example, to run an auto plant that right. it did uh, back in the day. This is a this is a big problem, is it not? For the for for a country in which people are told if you work hard, you can get ahead. I mean, that's really what we love about our country, right? This is what we celebrate about our country. This is a place where if you have, you know, in theory, if you have the the, the gumption and the uh, wherewithal that you can get ahead. That's not happening as much. Uh, anymore. What do we do about that? Well, there have some stru- real structural change. And, and and by the way, there's been structural change in economies all ever since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. There's nothing new about that. The, the question is whether or not you have a system of public policies and culture and, and industry and, and just basic economics that can adjust to these structural changes or whether they actually leave people behind. Uh, I, I think that to understand what's happening in the United States, it's true that we had a convergence of two things. We had this major structural readjustment through globalization and through changes in the high-tech post-industrial economy that met the financial markets crisis. And the people who got hurt the most were people in the bottom half, particularly people in the bottom quarter. But it reached all the way up to the top three quarters or even more of people who got caught in this pincher. And, and people in the, the very top, the, the 10 and 20% of the, uh, the uppermost reaches of the economy, they don't quite understand what it's like to be in a situation not where you're missing three squares a day, but where you're not making progress and you don't believe that your kids are going to make progress, and that's exhausting. Okay, so th- how, do you, how do you cope with that? Now, let's back up a little bit and talk about a mistake that I believe that we've made, and a major mistake that we've made in public policy. Um, when, when, when Lyndon Johnson announced the, the Great Society on May 22nd, 1964, mm-hmm. the date that it was literally one day after I was born, so I, I remember the speech, uh, great speech. And it, Lyndon Johnson, it was, a, it was soaring rhetoric. It was, there's zero words that I would disagree with as a conservative, nor would you as a progressive. It was a beautiful speech. It talked about ennobling of the human spirit. It talked about dignity. It talked about the potential of every person. The problem is that that set forth in motion a lot of public policies that that effectively moved Americans who were left behind um, into the zone of help and out of the zone of need. You know, there's something that happened when, when you're and my parents were kids, David, where we actually where we needed poor people. It, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary thing to remember, but the, what's etched on the bottom of the Statue of Liberty, give us your poor, that meant something. This is a, this is a country that was based on the, the hard work and labor and, and initiative and entrepreneurship of, of your parents and grandparents and, and mine as well. Uh, the problem is that today, I don't think that we can honestly say that we need the poor. We tolerate them, we help them, we and we can make them dependent. But there's been a significant cultural shift. And, and the, the way that we're going to solve the problems that you've raised, the way that conservatives and liberals are going to come together to make a country that, that works for everybody, is to make a country that needs everybody. We have an education system that's very clear that does not make people necessary. It renders people superfluous. When 95% of high school seniors say they, they're going to apply to college, 65% do, and 30% graduate, 
We're living in a country that's not preparing people for the actual circumstances in their life. You know, over the past two or three generations, we've privileged this elite notion of college for all. We've stopped training people in the in the hard skills and the trades that people might need. It's extraordinary. Today, David, there are 300,000 unfilled skilled welding jobs in America. And yet we have high rates of unemployment, particularly in minority communities in America's cities. This is not right. Now, this if, is what this was the... Um this was the thinking behind uh, the president's initiative when I was over there uh, to try and transform our community college system into one in which uh, those that kind of skills training was going to be available. This would be great. I would do it differently than how the president proposed it, mostly because I would work through trade schools. I don't know, vouchers through trade skills and a national apprenticeship program. But, but again, let's have this national conversation between liberals and conservatives that's predicated on the idea that we need good, hard, dignified work that you can't outsource such that you don't have 70% of the country that doesn't go to college and is many of whom, millions and millions of people who are who wind up in semi-skilled service jobs and food service and retail and healthcare. Good jobs to be sure, but but jobs that 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 maybe not as good for raising a family as the skilled trades that are being left behind. One of the reasons that people are looking to to immigrants to this country, by the way, is because they're looking for people who have skills to do things like welding a T-joint, fixing an elevator, which a lot of Americans can't do. And you know, that's a that's a, a ridiculous situation in this country where people are being left behind while at the same time we're not meeting the needs of this country to move forward. Not everybody has to be a computer programmer or write software or work in biotech. On the contrary, you know, I, I, it takes me five weeks to get somebody to put gutters on my house and I pay a lot for it. And the reason is because we don't have people who have the skills to do that. And we could solve that problem. You know, I... Um I agree with much of what you said. I, I, the thing that makes me a little bit uneasy is, you know, we're, we're sitting here on the south side of Chicago. I'm pretty sure that within uh, a stone's throw of here, there are, are young people who have enormous capacities, but they'll never be mined. They'll never be developed because they don't have the opportunity uh, and uh, uh you know the the environmental situation that allows them to do that. They don't have the kind of um, preschool, for example, that my granddaughter has. And uh, you have they a granddaughter. Have a, they you look do. so young, David. I know. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. Uh, but uh, but uh, the point is, um, I, I I think we should have alternatives for young people. But shouldn't we also give every young person the chance to uh, to do uh, what is in, within their capacity to do by making sure they get the education that they they need. Particularly, I think part of the problem with college is we send kids to college unprepared for right. it. No, look, I agree with you, David. And the question is, what does that mean? Um, you know, I, I see a lot of pretty misguided conversations that say that uh, to, to look at universal pre-K programs that I love the sound of. The problem is that they're not vetted very well in the research to make sure that they actually help people. One, one of the things that the research frequently shows is that universal pre-K programs are great for kids of families that have prepared them for these universal pre-K programs or for pre-K programs that get them ready to go to school and, and, and exploit the social skills that they're learning. But they don't work as well for people that come from relatively dysfunctional families. So we need a lot more work on, on, on indeed what works. The second thing is that in a highly unionized and bureaucratized public school system, it's extremely hard 
to, to change the system such that people can get the skills that they need, the individualized skills that they need with the, the innovations in education. I mean, th- this notion that, that we can't put trades back in high school uh, because we have, a, we have an education system that, that is pretty uniform and that's getting people ready for college, it, that's a mistake. And so if we could find some way to get out of the iron cage of what public schooling looks like, I bet you we could bring right and left right back together again on what every, people need to serve each person best. And we're not doing it right now. It's interesting what you say about pre-K and and that if you have the sort of familial support, you're going to thrive. And if you don't, you're not. Because one of the interesting things to me uh, about charter schools, for example, is I always wonder whether those kids uh, who succeed, succeed because their parents took a, a deep enough interest in them to seek that school out and to want their child to attend that school. And that suggests to me a level of investment in the child's education, emotional investment, that is, uh, is, is really helpful. But I... Uh, we, have good, we have good data on that a little bit in Washington, D.C. Uh, Washington, D.C. is an interesting laboratory. Um, we spent a lot of money per kid and, and have had pretty bad results for a long time. We have a good schools chancellor named Kaya Henderson, who I'm sure you know, uh, there who's investing in a major way in charters. And the charter schools, they, they serve kids who are generally poorer from more disadvantaged backgrounds. They spend less per kid and they have better results. And so generally, generally speaking, yeah, I mean, of course, not in every case. And there are some charter schools that don't work, but you want the kind of innovative environment where charter schools that aren't working can be shut down uh, such that we can serve every kid. And there is some sort of accountability. So I think that so far in places like Washington, D.C., we've got some good results. Yeah, listen, here's where you and I agree. I think in the 21st century, we need to think through education and we need to we need to recognize it as a absolute priority because uh even in even in uh, jobs that we used to consider blue collar jobs you need to know how to program uh, uh robotic machinery and you need to know how to operate that machinery they're just we the the, the demand for knowledge is just so much greater Absolutely. Uh, to be a good welder today, you need to know trigonometry. It's not, it, I mean, it's, it's very Which is why I'm doing this. <laughs> exactly right. No, um, no, it's, uh, there's, uh, the skills that we need for virtually everything are higher than they used to be, which is why we really don't want to be cranking kids through sixth grade and right into the workforce. We want people to be able to go through high school. But the idea that you need four years of college to be, a, to be gainfully employed in the country, I mean, all, all, effectively, all we're doing is that we're slowing down the, the launch of people. We're, we're slowing down the move to adulthood to people. And I think that that's a mistake. I think it's a mistake for human flourishing. It's a mistake for our economy. It's a mistake for families. Yeah, I just don't think that we should decide uh, early in one child's life that they're going to be on this track or that track if they have the capacity to be the next president of the American Enterprise Institute or the next French horn player in the New York Symphony. I don't know why you're pulling out these examples. I'm pandering is is what I'm doing No, this is just very arbitrary, (laughs) Dave. But let's talk a little bit about your book, uh, The Conservative Heart. You you, uh, bridle at the... uh, term compassionate conservative uh tell me why that you're you're uncomfortable with that term well you know for the longest time conservatives have been apologizing for being conservatives because particularly in the intellectual world you're you're around a lot of progressives and progressives have 
sort of taken all the real estate when it comes to compassion. So they'll put, a lot of conservatives will put the disclaimer on their own title. So that would be like a, a liberal saying that I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a liberal, but I don't believe in wasting money. I mean, that would bother you because you're, as a liberal, I, I've never gotten the impression that you just want to throw money out of helicopters and waste it. You probably want to spend more government money than I do, but it doesn't mean you want to waste it. No, well, I, so, I appreciate you. You're right. You're yeah. absolutely right. <laughs> and so to say I'm a compassionate conservative is to say that the others aren't. And, you know, I've known a lot of conservatives in my day. I've known more liberals than conservatives, but I can tell you, conservatives, they care about mostly the same things that, that liberals do. They care about wiping out poverty. They want a society that's fair, but they have different means of doing it. Uh, to be a, a good and decent person should presuppose that you're compassionate toward your fellow men and women. And to put compassion in front of it is to basically cede the high ground on compassion to people who don't share your ideology. Do you think, uh, the, you know, you write in your book about how it came to be that conservatives uh, were uh, viewed in that way and that they uh, that the 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 terms that uh, conservatives have used and perhaps the issues that they've emphasized uh, that go to sort of new you know fiscal formulas and mm-hmm. so on uh, have left people a little bit cold right um, do you think underneath all of that uh, is uh, a program that's really at its heart uh, designed to lift people out of poverty and emphasize people of people who are in need and I think that the what underlies it may not be a political program because I think that most political programs uh, ultimately don't have human flourishing at their core. I wish they did. I wish that the political program behind the Democratic Party and Republican Party were all really all about human flourishing. But I do believe that people have an inherent morality that they they love their country and and they they want solidarity and they want to help other people not everybody and not everybody in equal measure but i do honestly believe that people at their heart that americans are are good and they they want fairness they actually do believe in compassion and they build these political systems that they think are going to serve their serve these goals the best that they possibly can you know it's interesting i've i've studied the concept of fairness a lot when i was teaching at syracuse i would you know i had these these public policy classes. And that was one of the concepts that I would teach. And, and what you find is that, that conservatives and liberals believe in equal, equally in the concept of fairness. Now, conservatives don't like to talk about fairness because it sounds like you're talking like a liberal. It's just there's a, a slightly different definition of fairness. So when conservatives talk about it, they talk about it in a much more meritocratic sense of working hard and playing by the rules. And, and liberals talk about it differently than conservatives do. They talk more about equality. Uh, so there's more of a redistributive sense of fairness, conservatives more meritocratic sense of fairness. But both care deeply about the concept of fairness. And, and we, when we can come together to say that actually both are sort of important. You know, it's interesting. I, as I move around and I talk to people, uh, and yes, I do talk to conservatives as well as liberals. But when you stop and talk to people on the street, and people do stop me just to talk about politics, oftentimes you hear people say, um, I just uh, I, I don't like Democrats because they want to give away all this free stuff. Right. Uh, what what is free stuff? Well, free stuff is clearly when people are talking about free stuff, they mean something that's provided by the government that's not paid for um, by an individual. And this has become a real bugaboo for conservatives. I hear conservatives say all the time, "Look, we can't compete with free stuff, so don't try." Um, the, the the proper rejoinder is that aspiration on both sides beats free stuff all day long. 
the idea that we can build a better society where people can earn their way. That's actually what everybody wants. We're trying to build a society where that's possible and liberals and conservatives are going to disagree on how that gets done. So the free stuff argument is profoundly misguided, I think. However, I do think that there are some some real differences between what conservatives and and liberals think (coughs) is the proper role of government. In my view, the, the, and, and again, I, I take this ideology simply from, from Friedrich Hayek, for example, the, probably the most prominent economist, libertarian or conservative economist of the 20th century. And his views sound sort of center-left today in a lot of ways. He believed that, it, that the government should, should intervene where markets are failing. And the markets fail in some canonical ways. Uh, they fail when you have public goods, the provision of national security or police or fire or whatever. Uh, when there are externalities, things like pollution, when there's crime or differences in information or exploitation, and when there's monopoly. And furthermore, Friedrich Hayek believes, and I strongly agree, that the government has a, has a privilege to provide a safety net for people so they don't fall too far in a society. It's truly the greatest, in my view, the truly the greatest achievement of the free enterprise system is our ability to provide a safety net for our brothers and sisters whom we've never even met, such that they don't have to, to, to undergo undue deprivation. That's a wonderful thing. Even if that creates a headwind with respect to economic efficiency, that's something we should all be for. Now, the reason that I have fiscally conservative views is because, as an historical matter, when you're not fiscally conservative, you will ultimately face insolvency. Insolvency leads to austerity, and austerity destroys the safety net for the poor. So if we believe in in, in being able to provide certain goods and services so that people can participate in an opportunity society as equally as they possibly can, and not fall too far in terms of deprivation, we have to have fiscally sane policies, in my view, fiscally conservative policies with respect to things like like, uh, like entitlements. So I don't mean to get you in a long-distance debate with anyone, but you know, when Grover Norquist says, I want to shrink government down so that it's so small you can drown it in a bathtub, does that is that consonant with your view? Well, I've known Grover for a long time, and, and, and he was joking. <laughs> when he said that, because that actually doesn't mean anything technically. The idea of shrink, he just the idea, that- but the idea, the idea that you, one should never raise taxes. Uh, ultimately, given the nature of things, if you don't ever raise taxes, um, you know, you're 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 over time going to shrink uh, the size of of government, and that and that seems to be his plan. Any anything that is is um, anything that is characterized at all as a revenue-raising uh, device is something that he generally opposes. Well, let me let me defend Grover um, for a minute. Um, Grover Norquist doesn't think we should have no taxes and no government. Uh, n- almost nobody thinks that when they're thinking about it. We actually need a functioning state, and the functioning state needs revenues. What, what Grover Norquist makes the point is that we have lots and lots of revenues already, the question is how we should spend those revenues, how we should efficiently use those revenues for the betterment of all the people in our society. Uh, so w- when people talk about limited government, they're not talking about no government. I mean, you have to be a real radical, kind of an anarcho-capitalist to believe that, and very, very few people believe that. Cer- certainly no people in, in my world do, or, or yours, I think. And so I think Grover Norquist would simply make the point, if he were here with us, that, that there's plenty of revenue out there right now. We just need to use it better in the same way, the same way that you would in a common sense way if that were you're looking at your family budget you wouldn't say well i gotta just gotta get more money because i'm wasting so much i better get more so i can spend some more money 
notwithstanding the waste that you would you try to cut out the waste first and and i think that he thinks that as a general rule we should have a sort of prima facie uh, um, belief in in keeping taxes where they are, lowering them, and trying to work more on the fiscally sane conservative side first. I mean, I think that that would characterize his point of view and not being a radical and simply getting rid of all government. Uh, let me ask you about the regulatory side of things. Um, I know you're an opponent. Uh, I know you support the earned income tax credit. Yep. And uh, this is something that you and I probably agree strongly on. Mm. It's an incentive for people at the bottom of the scale who are working and right. um, they ought not live in poverty if they're working hard. But uh, I know you've also been opposed to the minimum wage. Right. Um, and I'm just wondering, what, what is the appropriate role of government in, in that regard? I mean, should any business be uh, uh, free to, like his child, labor appropriate or where 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 would you say the government where would you draw the line so it, and this is important we have a lot of liberals listening to us today because they're your fans and and they've never my, heard it. you'd be surprised my audience is very diverse well, well that's good and so that's I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that but i know that let's just say i know that there are going to be a lot of progressives listening who probably have never heard a conservative talk about the minimum wage and so so let me let me give it a quick shot uh the minimum wage is not evil. The minimum wage is based on a really good objective, a really noble and moral objective, which is to make work pay. One of the things I love about the minimum wage is that it's not just an expansion of welfare benefits to pay people to not work. On the contrary, this is liberals saying, let's pay people more to work, which is what conservatives should believe in. Because look, we believe in work, that work brings dignity and order and meaning to people's lives. So that's great. The objective is terrific. The problem is not the objective. The problem is the very messy policy. The problem is it has a highly asymmetric impact. And so, so if, we, if we were to, President Obama suggested raising the minimum wage to 1010, which sounds sort of quaint today, because I think Bernie Sanders wants it to make it $720 an hour or something. Or 15. There's something, yeah, something higher than $10.10 an hour. But, you know, when we ran the numbers on that, uh, $10.10 an hour, it would lift a bunch of people out of poverty. But 82% of the people who earn the minimum wage are not in poverty. It would also eliminate about half a million jobs. And those are almost all people who are in poverty right now. So again, I don't want to impugn the motives of people who want to increase the minimum wage. I just object to a, a really asymmetric, messy result of that that disproportionately negatively, negatively impacts poor people. This is a hotly debated issue, though. You'd concede, I think there was a poll here done at the University of Chicago of... Uh, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of leading economists, and they basically divided evenly between the notion that uh, supporting your point of view and the notion that it wouldn't be a harmful. Uh, it it wouldn't be harmful. In well, the, the key way is look. If if you raise the minimum wage a little, it destroys a few jobs, and you raise it a lot, it destroys more jobs. That's one thing that pretty much all economists agree on. So if you said to any economist at the University of Chicago or any place else, what if we made a $50 minimum wage? They said, that's nuts, because you'd eliminate way, way, way too many jobs. Right. It's really a question of degree, David, on, on, on what we're trying to do, is how that comes out. So it's not as if there are any respectable economists. I mean, in real terms, the, 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 the minimum wage is, is lower than it's been at times in our in our history. No, that's right. So, but for somebody in, with my position who says that, let let's say that we truly don't know what the full impact is going to be, because you know the truth is there are a lot of impact 
uh, variables that create impact in these markets. You know, right now, Seattle is going toward 15, my hometown is moving toward $15 an hour. And, and, and we don't know, is it eliminating jobs? Is it hurting poor people? Or, or is it actually not really having an impact? It's, it's, we don't know yet. But isn't the part of it, 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 it in, a, in, a, in a very prosperous environment, I mean, isn't it more likely to do little harm? In a more prosperous environment, it will do less harm to be sure of course because there are these there are these uh, countervailing variables but but here's my point if we don't know it's an experiment and we're not experimenting with my money or david's money we're experimenting with the ability of the poorest people to keep their jobs largely men largely men with low levels of education and a tangential relationship to the workforce and that's a, that can be a scary experiment because you can only know two or three years later that you've eliminated people's jobs like this and it it doesn't just impact crime rates etc it impacts real human flourishing but so, the progressive answer to that point would be no, we're asking very profitable corporations, uh, in many cases, uh, to uh, you know some of the fast food providers, mm-hmm. for example, uh, to to part with a little more money for their workers with with the accompanying impact of fewer jobs. I mean, this is the key thing. My heart doesn't bleed for the McDonald's corporation. I'm not saying, oh, woe is to you know be unto Burger King because Burger King is not able to pay these. They can pay that, of course, but the point is they will create fewer jobs. In in, in the late 1970s, when Jimmy Carter increased the minimum wage a lot suddenly, but because of the best of intentions, to be sure, that largely eliminated the need for low wage work at at gas stations, and that created the automation of the gas pump. You know, the automation will occur very quickly under the circumstances. So let's agree on one thing, David. Let's say that I think that an increase in the minimum wage is a dangerous experiment for poor people. You think it's a good idea. The one thing we both agree on, however, is that making work pay is a good thing I, I to do. I agree with that. And we, have, think, we both have I a policy we also that we agree can agree on. Do. We also apparently agree on that there's some point at which you can, uh, you can introduce a higher minimum wage and have relatively small uh, impacts. But let, let me just ask you one thing because we're running out of time here about this whole debate about free stuff and so on. Um, and I, I really, I, I, how much do you think race plays into these debates? How much do you think uh, uh, people have the, you know, good example is food stamps. Majority, the majority of people who, are, who, who have, are on food stamps in this country are not black but white. Right, 60%. Right. Right. But and yet I think the image in the minds of 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 some of the folks who talk about free stuff is not that. So, um what's your honest assessment of that and how do we overcome it? You know, race is not um inconsequential in how people think in this country. I mean, I, I really wish we were living in a post-racial society. I know President Obama wishes we were living in a post-racial society. Everybody listening to us, wouldn't it be great? But we don't. We don't yet. We're not. We've made a lot of progress, certainly since you and I were kids. But it's not as good as we would like it to be. And so, therefore, a lot of attitudes are colored uh, by race. They, you know, with what they see people, particular beneficiaries of welfare, and they think along racial lines. And, and I think all of us have a personal responsibility to try to to temper our rhetoric and make sure that we're 
uh, impeccable when it comes to the way that we talk about these particular policies and work toward a, a colorblind society. Is it possible? I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, would you agree with me that there's been progress since we were kids? Oh, there's no doubt there's been progress. I just think at times of economic anxiety, it's very easy, and we've seen it in this election, to say it's the it's the immigrant, it's the yeah. poor person, it's the... It's the other, is what it comes down to. Right. Look, when... when, when uh, one one presidential candidate says that you know, immigrants are sneaking across the border to take your jobs, or another presidential candidate says it's it's wealthy bankers who want to take away your stuff, and it's rich people who are just not paying their fair share. I mean, we're basically looking at the other as opposed to trying to find solutions that are going to benefit us all. We are. I think the critique of the wealthy bankers, though, is um, that uh, the crisis that we just went through uh, was propagated by. Uh, manipulation on Wall Street that, that uh, you know, I would say, prop, and we would have different prescriptions, should have been uh, better regulated. Yeah. And, you know, the, my, my response, predictably, is that <laughs> the crisis starts in the housing market with the GSEs, with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which were largely manipulated by, by government housing objectives that led to a lot of subprime mortgages that shouldn't have been written in the first place. And There's, then Wall Street banks, of course, exploited a system with through these market signals uh, that was really responsible. There's a really good book on this that I would recommend to you by Bethany McLean, who's a journalist in this town, who kind of debunks the whole GSE uh, rationale here. She's a financial uh, reporter, but and we, let, let me recommend a book yeah. too by Peter Wallison, who's a scholar at AEI, who really proves that in fact it was the GSC. We should get the two of them <laughs> together. That could be a good podcast. Exactly right. So Arthur Brooks, it's really good to be with you. Thank you for coming to the University of Chicago, the conservative heart, one of the most interesting guys uh, in the public debate today, and look for his column in the New York Times as well. Thank you, David. A joy to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.